The book of Daniel sets out to answer two questions. How do we live in a foreign land? And how do we fit in here without being swallowed up? But as we enter into chapter 9, this chapter sheds light onto another question. How do we find our way back home? If you are just joining us this morning, welcome. Uh, It is helpful to know that Daniel is an Israelite who was displaced from his home in Jerusalem and relocated to Babylon uh, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar around 605 AD. And what we see in this passage is that Daniel never settles for exile. Daniel seeks to be faithful while he's in exile. He tries to resist uh, assimilating fully into the culture whenever possible. Uh, Daniel even seeks the well-being, the welfare, the flourishing of Babylon while he's there. He submits to serving in the very government that overthrew his people, but never does Daniel settle for exile as his end. He does not give up on the hope that one day God will bring him and his fellow Israelites back to their land. And as Daniel wrestles with this question, how do we find our way back home? It leads him to a crucial practice, confession. We see that confession is how that path is found for Daniel. And that is why I picked this passage for our five-year anniversary of all things. I could have pushed this back a week, but I think it is important for us to understand how confession is an identity-defining practice, and that it can cultivate within us a humble boldness that our city desperately needs. And so here's the idea I want to explore this morning. We are greatly loved by God, and this is why we can confess with humble boldness. We are greatly loved by God, and this is why we can confess with humble boldness. If you have a Bible, open it up to Daniel 9. If you don't own a Bible, uh, grab one of our great Bibles and take it home with you. We're not going to read everything all over again, but we'll jump in at a few points. And everything's going to be on the screen behind me. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Daniel is now very old. We said this last week, he entered into Babylon as a youth, as a teenager, and now he's an old man, possibly in his 80s. And throughout much of his life, he has had a front row seat in the theater of God's plans for the future. For most of his life, Daniel has known through dreams and through visions that Babylon will end. Babylon will fall, and now it has. Babylon has been overthrown. Darius, which is another name for King Cyrus, the great Persian king, is now ruling over that region, just as Daniel saw that it would happen in advance. But Daniel's concern at this critical juncture of history is elsewhere. We're told that Daniel has been reading the scrolls of Jeremiah and he has been meditating upon a promise given to Jeremiah that God will bring Israel back to Jerusalem after 70 years. And in light of this, Daniel cannot neglect the reason that Israel is in exile in the first place. 
which is why he turned to the Lord and sought God through prayer and through fasting and through confession. Daniel thoroughly humbles himself before God. This is a flat on your face experience. If we pay attention to his confession in verses 4 through 14, which we won't read again, uh, we can see why. We can see why he's humbled. Just look at the words he uses. Sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside, not listened, committed treachery, refused to obey, transgressed, done wickedly, and committed iniquity. Daniel has just expanded our vocabulary for sin. Done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside, not listened, committed treachery, refused to obey, transgressed, done wickedly, and committed iniquity. We have difficulty feigning weaknesses in a job interview, right? Like, what is one of your weaknesses? I work too hard, right? But Daniel, when it comes to self-examination, when it comes to acknowledging not just weakness but fault, he's exhaustive. He leaves no stone unturned. And we cannot ignore that Daniel's not just confessing his own faults. He's also confessing the faults of his people. He's confessing the sins of Israel. And Daniel is also showing us that this is not just true of him and of Israel. It is true of all of us as well. All of us explicitly or implicitly, intentionally or unintentionally have rejected God. And Daniel says in verse 7 and verse 8, it is to our open shame. It is to our open shame. Shame says something is wrong with us. Shame says something is wrong with us. And Daniel is flat on his faith on his face and he's ashamed because sin indicates that something indeed is wrong with us. But his perspective I think is one that we're quick to dismiss. And perhaps it's even an issue you take with Christianity. We seem to have such a negative view of humanity. Surely we're not this bad. There's two issues. There's two issues in our cultural moment that inhibit us from the weightiness of sin and the necessity of shame. There's two things that stop us from feeling the force of this passage. And the first is lightheartedness. Lightheartedness inhibits us from feeling the weightiness of sin. Uh, the pastor, Alistair Begg, who has an amazing Scottish accent and a greater first name, uh, and I suppose we can forgive him for spelling it incorrectly, uh, recently said this, one of the great dangers of the world in which we now live is a sort of superficial frivolity about things. If we look at our priorities, if we break down our time, we have to admit that it will appear like the weight of importance lands on our phones, our social media, our entertainment, our hobbies, our travel, the next purchase, the latest trend being in the right circles. We are connoisseurs and curators of lifestyles, but we end up treating the side dishes of life as if they are the main entree. And many of these things are good, but should not carry the weight of importance that we give to them. We take light things in life and we make them heavy things. We make them the ultimate things. But on the other hand, we take serious things and we make them light. We take scripture and we treat it like any other book. We expect complex truth to be reducible down to a tweet. We respond to difficult social moments with memes. We have turned funerals into celebrations of life. 
You see, it's hard for us to feel and grasp the weightiness of this passage because it's hard for us to feel the weightiness of anything at all. So we can't be that bad because in our minds, sins are just neuroses. Transgressions, they're just little mistakes. And wickedness, it's just merely human brokenness. And so we don't see the full weight and gravity of sin because our culture has disposed us to take light things seriously and serious things lightly. But even if we felt the weight of sin, even if we felt the full force of what Daniel is saying here, even if it evokes what he describes as open shame, the second issue is right now how our culture responds to shame. The psychologist Joseph Burgo writes, Of all the painful emotions humans must bear, a core sense of shame is the most excruciating, the most difficult to bear. The experience of basic shame feels like inner ugliness. The conviction that if others were to truly see us, they'd recoil in scorn or disgust. Essentially, shame is that voice that says, something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with me. But there's a current trend that labels all shame as fundamentally wrong. And it's not entirely misguided because shame is painful and a desire to alleviate shame for others is a good desire. And to be clear, there are some forms of shame that are wrong and inappropriate. When a child carries shame because they've been harmed or abused or when a victim uh, experiences shame, this is inappropriate shame or what psychologists call toxic shame. It's shame that results of a, because a wrong was committed against you. And so the shame emerges, but you have no reason to be ashamed because you didn't do anything wrong. A wrong was done to you. And so it is good and it is right to try to help people heal from this sort of shame, this sort of experience. And if this is the sort of shame you're carrying into this room this morning, I want you to know there's a lot of great opportunities uh, to heal from that sort of shame. And if you don't know where to go, we would love to journey with you in that and help point you in the right direction. But this is not the shame Daniel's talking about, and it's not the shame I have on my mind. I'm concerned about the quasi-spiritual psychology that proposes that all shame, even the shame we feel when we have done wrong, all shame is wrong. And any shame can be overcome through these things, vulnerability, authenticity, connection with others, and acceptance. Anyone ever heard these things? Pretty frequent in our culture at the moment. And it's true. Acknowledging shame does make us feel better. Knowing that others feel shame makes us feel less alone, less isolated. But this will never repair the parts of us that we know are broken. The parts inside of us, in our core, that believe something is wrong with me. You see, sometimes shame is a sign of a healthy conscience. In case you're wondering where I got that, Roger Revel. Sometimes shame is a sign of healthy conscience. If you feel ashamed because you were greedy and you took advantage of someone, or because you used your power or status to bully someone, or you objectified someone sexually, or you exploited the poor, or you lashed out in anger, or you committed infidelity, shame is an appropriate response. If you've done something along these lines and you feel ashamed, how could I do this? What is wrong with me? That is an appropriate response. And in this scenario, shame emerges because of sin in our lives. 
So it's one thing to acknowledge the shame before others. It is another to bring that shame before the God of the universe, before God, our Father, and to say, this is my shame, and I confess that I have sinned against you and against others. And sin is the source of this shame. That is a different thing altogether, and no amount of vulnerability or acceptance or connection is going to solve that. And so what I want us to see is that the lightheartedness of our culture and this Uh, current response to shame makes it incredibly difficult for us to feel the full weight of this passage. And so if you heard it read this morning and you felt distant from it and you felt like, I don't know that I can confess and feel this sort of weightiness to my sins, that's why. We live in a culture that is trying to immunize us against feeling like our sins are actually wrong. And even if we feel like they're wrong, they shouldn't be shameful because they're not really that bad. But here's the thing, why should we push past these barriers then and learn this practice of confession? Why should we learn to confess? I mentioned a few weeks ago that I struggled uh, with drugs in my late teens, and it started out as a casual social thing and quickly became a habit, an expensive habit. And I soon discovered that working at Panago uh, wasn't providing me enough money. And when I worked at Panago, it was po- called Panagopolis. Anybody old enough to remember that? Panagopolis. And uh, so I was faced with the dilemma. How do I keep sourcing my drugs? And late one night, I got up and I was living at home and I decided to take $20 out of my dad's wallet. And he didn't notice and life went on as usual. And I did this a few times. And over time, I got more uh, confident. I took his debit card one night, went to the bank, and withdrew $20 and still no comment. And I kept doing this for a season until one night, my parents sat me down at the kitchen table and said, hey, we are looking at our statement of accounts and we see all these withdrawals. Do you know anything about this? And I flat out denied it. I said, I have no idea how that's possibly happened to you guys. Now, why would I do that? because I was ashamed of what I had done. And I couldn't admit it to myself, and I couldn't admit it to my parents. But what was the cost? I knew I was lying. My parents knew I was lying, because mysteriously, the withdrawal stopped after that point. (laughs) But as a result, remaining in the lie and being stuck in my shame created relational distance. You see, my parents were eager for my confession, not so that they could punish me, but so that they could find out what was wrong and reconcile with me and forgive me and help me work through whatever was going through. But shame didn't allow me to connect with them and experience all the benefits of that relationship being restored and the possible healing it could bring. Confession is always relational. Confession is always relational. And that's why we should embrace it. Did you notice the language Daniel used? Daniel stresses that sins are against God. He said, we have committed treachery against you. We have committed sins against you. Sin creates relational damage, a distance, and separates us from God. And that is what needs to be overcome. And so how can we start to confess like Daniel? Well, we can begin by confessing our hindrances to confession. We can confess that we don't take sin as seriously as we ought to. We can confess that we resist addressing our shame. We can confess that we struggle to confess at all. That's a good place to begin. 
But I think there is a better way to learn confession. More importantly, we need a bigger vision of God. If you want better confession, get a bigger vision of God. Daniel confesses a lot. We see that in verses 4 through 14. But Daniel also affirms a lot. Throughout his confession, Daniel says, God is great. God is awesome. God keeps the covenant and he is steadfast in love. God is righteous and he's full of mercy. God is forgiving. And we're happy to stop there. But Daniel continues in verse 12. God also keeps his word. God keeps his word. And the covenant God kept with Israel was much like wedding vows. There was no if statements. It was a therefore. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel. Therefore, you are my people. And they decided to accept that proposition. But they were unfaithful to their vows again and again and again. And even though they broke the covenant, God refused to break the covenant on his end. God remained faithful. God kept his word, which meant for a season that he had to bring the weight and the seriousness of Israel's sins upon their unfaithfulness. But the point Daniel wants to stress in this is that God does not wink at sin. God doesn't wink at sin. You see, we might want him to wink at our personal sins because we don't think they're that big deal. But when we look at the atrocities happening around the world, we don't want God to wink at those sins. We don't want God to just pretend like um, millions of people starving to death is no big deal. And to wink at the dictators uh, in Saudi Arabia who are going after Yemen and causing all sorts of suffering. We don't want God to wink at that. We want God to take that sin seriously, but we don't want to apply the same measure to ourselves. But God does not wink at sin. He does not take sin lightly and he judges us for it. And initially it's painful, but I want you to hear me on this. God is not out to get us. God is not out to get us. God does not delight in judgment. And even in judgment, God remains loving and offers mercy and forgiveness. You see, Daniel affirms the full character of God. He is merciful and he's loving and he's forgiveness and he's great and he's awesome, but he's also righteous and a judge. God is loving and Daniel sees that. But God is also a judge. And so in light of a healthy view of who God is, Daniel recovers a healthy view of himself. And so Daniel confesses his sins because he sees who he is in light of who God is. And when confession is not a response to who God is, when we confess for some other reason other than responding to how good and faithful and loyal God is to us, we run into all sorts of problems. If you confess because you think that God is a ruthless tally keeper, you're missing it. And you're always going to be living in fear. And confession is not some sort of self-flagellation or self-contempt. God is not trying to get us to beat ourselves up adequately so that we can come into his presence. Because if you live out that sort of confession, you're actually trying to earn his forgiveness. You're saying, I have felt guilty long enough and I've felt bad deep enough that now you have to forgive me. This is the point. Or if you think God is unfair and unpredictable, 
You'll never know if you've confessed enough. You'll never know if you've searched your heart and your conscience enough. And you'll always be anxious. See, these versions of confession, when we confess sin it, this way, it shows that we have a misformed vision of God. That something is missing in our vision of God because our practice reflects what we believe. True confession is a humble response to the goodness and the glory and the perfection of who God is. And so at its core, confession is repentance and belief. It's belief because you have to believe God is good and awesome and loving and forgiving and merciful, but it's repentance because you turn to him because you acknowledge he's also a judge, and so you need mercy and forgiveness. And so if you've never felt broken over sin, if you've felt a distance between you and the weightiness of sin as it's described in this passage, you could double down on confession. That would be one way to go about it. But I would propose that you need to expand your vision of God. You need to ask God to reveal to you who he truly is. And you need to dwell in the scriptures a little while longer. Because as your vision of God becomes fuller, you will see yourself more clearly and confession will flow naturally. But here's the thing. Confession, albeit long in this chapter, is only half of the chapter. Daniel confesses. But then he turns to petition. He turns to asking God for things. Look at verse 15. Daniel shows us a remarkable, humble boldness. He says, And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as this day we have sinned, we've done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel knows the story of God. And Daniel banks on the story of God. He says God is able to deliver. How does he know that? He appeals to the Exodus. He appeals to the greatest act of deliverance in Israel's history. He appeals to the time when God liberated his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and brought them into their land. And Daniel essentially says, do it again. Do it again. Deliver us again with your mighty hand. And although Daniel is being bold, he remains humble. He asks God to do this for his own sake. He asks God to act because of God's great mercy. He wants God to deliver Israel because we're called by your name. Daniel has boldness coupled with his humility because he knows who God is. Daniel appeals to God on the basis of God's character alone. And when you learn to pray like that, it transforms your prayer life. You no longer have to be worthy enough to pray because you can appeal to who God is God doesn't owe Daniel or Israel or us anything. 
Look at what Daniel says in verse 18. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. So in other words, we don't present our prayers to you because of how good we are or because of how faithful we've been, but because of your great mercy. We never bring anything to the table that can warrant a response from God, but Daniel knows who God is, and so he banks on the goodness and the loving kindness of God to show mercy and to forgive and to deliver once again. So Daniel has humility because he knows who he is before God, but Daniel has boldness because he knows who God is. That's his humble boldness. And so he ends with an incredibly bold prayer in verse 19. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And we see God is quick to respond. We could even say God is eager to respond. Look at verses 20 and 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, an angel, whom I'd seen in the vision at first, came to me in the swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. So let me ask you a question. Was Daniel greatly loved before or after he confessed? Was Daniel greatly loved before or after he confessed? How you answer this will be very telling of your view of God. If Daniel is loved because he confessed, it creates all sorts of problems. You will feel in life never certain of God's great love for you. Because you will think you need to confess or you need to do something. You need to be thorough enough or faithful enough or more. You will feel like you have to live up to some measure and you will never know for certain if it is enough. And it'll create one of two things. You'll either become proud because you'll be thinking that you have done enough and that creates distance between you and God, or you'll feel even greater shame because you'll never feel freed from the law that you've created for yourself. That's the danger of thinking that Daniel was loved after he confessed. But Daniel was loved before he confessed. God's love, God's grace, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's forgiveness is offered to us first. God is always taking the initiative, always running towards us, always interrupting our confession with grace. Confession doesn't earn us God's love. It's a response to God's love. Look closely at how Daniel describes this interaction. While I was speaking and praying, while I was speaking in prayer, at the beginning of your pleas, before Daniel even finishes his prayer, the response is already on the way. One of the most famous parables told by Jesus is the parable of the prodigal son. When there's a father, he has two sons, an elder son and a younger son. And the youngest son decides he wants his share of the inheritance now. And you should know in the ancient world, that was essentially saying, I wish you were dead. 
And the father obliges. He bears that shame and humiliation and he gives the son what is owed to him. And the son takes his inheritance and hightails it out of there. Now, not long after the son cuts himself off from the father, he squanders all his inheritance and he finds himself in abject poverty. He is eating with pigs merely to survive. And in that shame, in the consequences of his sin, he comes to himself. And he says, I would be better off as a servant in my father's house even than here. And so he decides to start heading home. And he starts preparing his confession on the way. On the way home, he rehearses this speech. We're told it's this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But as the son approaches the father's home, the father sees him from a distance. And the father uh, hikes up his robe and starts running, sprinting towards his son and embraces him. And the son begins his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can finish it, the father cuts him off because he's eager to reconcile and lavish love upon his child. Before the son can reduce himself and say, treat me just as one of your hired servants, the father instead says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He's lost and he's found. And they begin to celebrate. The son needed confession to find his way back home. But confession simply opened him up to the one who met him on the road, who embraced him and who loved him all along. In some sense, the son knew he could go home because he knew the character of his father. But he also underestimated the character of his father. He thought, oh, I'll have to be a servant. But the father received him fully as a son because he's greatly loved. We might not experience it week after week, in the liturgy of confession. Sometimes I'm tempted to do this, but God always interrupts us in the middle of our confession. Sometimes I just wish in the middle of the words we could I just stop. Like grace and peace and mercy. God is eager to meet you as before the lip, words are even out of your lips. Confession is important. It is a good practice, but it is to remind us that God rushes out to embrace us because we are greatly loved. And Daniel hears this, but then the angel also gives him a word. Look at verse 24. 70 weeks, it's literally 70 sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Daniel knows, or God knows that Daniel has Jerusalem on his mind. He knows Daniel is wrestling with this promise of 70 years, but he also says to Daniel, you need to look further. You need to look further. Yes, Israel will return home. You'll receive your land, but that will not correct the issues of your heart. It will not take care of the deeper matters of sin. You need to look further. And a symbolic period of time will take place, 77s. And once it has passed, it will bring about something complete, something perfect, and something whole. You see, shame tells us, you will never be complete. You will never be perfect. You are not 
whole, something is wrong with you. That God promises there will be a time when he'll put an end to shame and sin and will bring about everlasting righteousness. And here's how we should understand it. God has made us enough, complete, and whole through Jesus Christ. That is how God will put away sin and atone for iniquity once and for all. And Jesus Christ came into the world to show us how greatly loved we are by God. Jesus didn't die for us so that we can be loved by God. Again, if that's how you see it, you're missing it. St. Paul puts it this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God loved you and that's why Jesus Christ came into the world and offered his life for you. It is a demonstration of God's unfailing love for you and his eagerness to do everything it takes to heal us so we can be received back into his kingdom and welcomed back home. Before we ever plan our confession, before we ever set back out on the path, God rushes to meet us with the words, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. So like Daniel, let's confess with humble boldness. Because you're greatly loved before you ever confess to God. But through confession, through repentance and belief, you can know this in your soul. And you can experience it as the power of salvation. And through confession, you will discover the path back into the heart of God.